Welcome. Welcome to church. Praise the Lord for the people of God that he has gathered us to worship him because he is the one who has redeemed us. Uh, Before we get into the word, um, we're going to pray, um, but we are going to pray specifically for the Goins family. This is their last Sunday here with us before they move to PA. Um, it's a, a bittersweet moment, but then also as I look out in the audience, we have the Johnsons with us for uh, a Sunday, and so I'm so excited to have them. Um, I'm just reminded that even though we are the local church called Forest Park, we are part of the global church, the people of God, and even though we send people out to go and continue to minister, we are still family because of Jesus. Uh, so Michael, Kristen, um, if you guys want to come up with your kids and uh, uh, friends, life group leaders, uh, family, let, let's pray over them as we send them out and bless them and thank them for how they've served in this church. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. We thank you that you are the one who is gathering a people for yourself, that you were the one who redeemed Michael and Kristen. You've opened up their eyes to your glorious truth. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we get to baptize them and get to disciple them, Lord. And now that they are entering into a new season of life where they're moving to Pennsylvania, we send them out. And Lord, I pray that as they move, that you would help them to find a local church where they can get involved in a local church, where they can be part of the body, be part of the family, and use the gifts and the abilities that you have given them to proclaim the gospel and to make an impact. Lord, I pray that you'll be with all the logistics. I pray that you'll be with Espen and Nittany as they move and transition with school. Lord, please provide for them. Continue to surround them with friends and with family. And Lord, use them in a mighty way. We thank you for them. We praise you for them. And now we send them out as we bless them. May you bless them. May you keep them. May your face shine upon them. And may you give them peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John 11. John 11, verse 45. And as you turn to John 11, verse 45, can we ask the Lord uh, to really open up our eyes to His truth, that His Spirit will illuminate truth to us and convict us and stir our hearts and our affections. And wherever we find ourselves in life, that he would speak to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can respond as we walk in joyful obedience. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've made yourself known. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you illuminate truth to us. Can you open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts? Can you help us to understand Can you help us to glorify Christ and see Christ throughout this text? Can you help us to respond in faith where we no longer look to ourselves, but we look to Christ, we believe in Christ, we rest in Christ, we follow Christ, we are in awe of Christ. And please help us. We ask all of this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we've been walking through the Gospel of John for 28 weeks, and we're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of John. And what John is trying to show us has been that Jesus is the Messiah, and He is the Son of God. And the way He's been doing it is by showing us how Jesus revealed His glory. Now, next week, we're going to go into a transition of the book where Jesus is entering into his last week, where now he is receiving glory from the Father. But up to this point, we've been seeing how Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God because he has been revealing his glory. And the reason why John wrote this letter and the reason what what John is trying to show us is to invite us to believe with us, believing in him the first time, or whether you continue to believe in him so that you may have life in his name because he He is life, and life can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, last week, when Jesus saw Mary and he saw the Jews crying, we see the emotions that Jesus showed. He was both angry and also weeping. And the same sin and death that prompted his outrage was also that generated his grief. And moved by compassion, we saw that Jesus went to the tomb and with a loud voice he called Lazarus from death to life. And by doing this, he is revealing his glory. He's revealing the glory of the Father. Now, all of us know that when dead people die, they're dead. They can't hear anything. So how did Lazarus hear? The reality of it is what it is showing us is not about the method of how God raised Lazarus from the dead, but rather in that method he is showing us and is drawing us to the point of the divine calling of God where Jesus calls us out of the sin of our grace when we were dead in our sins and he calls us to life. Now, many people saw this miracle happen. They saw how Jesus raised a man from death to life, a man who was once dead, but now he is alive. And again, it prompted people to evaluate who Jesus is. And we've seen that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus' works and also his words would frequently divide the Jews among themselves. Some would believe in him. Others were more skeptical. And what we see again in our passage is while many believed in Jesus, some were hardened by their own sin. And this is what John shows us in our text. Look at verse 45. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw, that he, saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So again, what's the result of this miracle, the sign that Jesus performed? John tells us many believed in him. They saw the resurrection of Lazarus, and in a sense, they believed. And John doesn't tell us the caliber of their faith other than he, they believed. But then in contrast to the group who believed, in contrast, the other group went to the Pharisees and reported what Jesus had done. Now, we might be thinking maybe they were just curious and just wanting to get the opinion of the Pharisees, and that's why they brought the news of what Jesus did to the Pharisees. However, based on what John is doing, he's contrasting those who are believing and those who are not believing. Those who are believing are believing, but those who are not are going to the Pharisees to report what Jesus had done. In other words, there was some malicious intent. 
They didn't do it because they were interested and wanted to get another opinion. They did it to report to the Pharisees what Jesus is doing because they are not believing in Jesus. Now, before we move on, you would think after this incredible miracle that Jesus just performed, raising Lazarus from the dead, you would think that the flow of the story, he would give us a little bit more details of the events that occurred after the resurrection. For example, like what did Lazarus experience in his death? The nature and the timing of his death. What did he say to his loved ones? And what did the loved ones say to him? Did he still kind of stink of death or was the odor completely gone? Like that's the natural flow of the story. A dead person is raised and the author reports everything about the dead person. But John doesn't do this. He immediately now moves from how the people responded. Some believed and then some reported to the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Because here's why. Because John is eager to show us that the sign that Jesus performed is going to lead the authorities to determine Jesus' arrest and his death. It's not about Lazarus being raised from the dead, although that's incredible. It's rather the sign that Jesus performed and what it anticipates. Because Jesus can clearly just call people out of their graves of their sin, but what he is showing us is, yes, he can do it, but it comes at a cost. And what is that cost? We're now going to see what this sign is going to cost Jesus. Look at verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, And we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So obviously what's happening is that the the people reported to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees had no authority on their own to do anything about this matter. They had no authority to arrest Jesus, to try Jesus, and execute Jesus. So what they decided to do with the news, they go to the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. And it's important for us to understand uh, how this court system works a little bit. So the Sanhedrin was the highest judicial council among the Jews who were under Roman authority. This council handled all Jewish internal affairs. This council was also both judicial and legislative. In other words, not only did they write the law, They also enforced the law. You can imagine a little bit of conflict of interest there. The council consisted of 70 members that included priests and scribes. The priests were the Sadducees. In other words, they had a, a different theological position. The scribes were the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. And as a matter of fact, they didn't like anyone. They didn't like each other. And so as the Pharisees heard the news, even though they are not in alignment with the Sadducees, because they have a common problem, because they have a common enemy, they decide to make their alliance with these Sadducees to deal with this problem. So the Sanhedrin, that's made up of both priests and scribes, Sadducees and Pharisees, convene together. 
Now, the executive officer of this council was the chief priest. And so what's happening in this council as they're gathering to discuss the accusations they bring against Jesus, in a sense, is perplexing. It's perplexing because they cannot deny the signs and the miracles that Jesus is performing. They can't argue and say he is deceiving people by faking raising dead people to life, but rather as he is performing all these signs and miracles is undeniable. So what's their accusation against Jesus? That people are believing in him. Like what kind of accusation is that? He's not misleading people. He's not doing anything wrong. He's simply performing signs and miracles. And the accusation is that people are believing in him. And their fear is that the more people are believing in him, even though he might not lead to that riot, the people believing in him might cause an uproar and stirring and a riot. And this would allow the Roman authority to come in and to squash it and in consequence remove their temple and in consequence remove their semi-autonomous national status. And so the reality of it is they don't really care about the facts. And this is why their accusation is perplexing. He's performing signs and wonders and miracles. We can't deny it. And rather than the signs and the miracles causing them to reevaluate their stance towards Jesus, like maybe he is from God, maybe he is the promised Messiah, what do they do? They come together they accuse him in fear of losing their political status and also their authority. And so as they convene, as they got, gather to discuss this matter about Jesus, look at what occurs in this council. Verse 49 says this, One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that, that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that here, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to the unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So here we get a, a, a look at who this high priest is. His name is Caiaphas, and we can kind of see what kind of guy he is. As everybody is convening and discussing this matter on his own, he steps in and he just blasts everybody. Basically what he is saying is, you guys don't know anything. You're a bunch of knuckleheads. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what's going on and what we need to do. And as he's saying it, we're going to see that everybody, in a sense, falls in line. Kind of tells us the, the character of this man. And as he presides, the presiding officer, he delivers his opinion. And he's saying, it's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. In other words, when Caiaphas argues that Jesus must die for the people, he's using sacrificial language, that Jesus, in a sense, must be the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of God in order to spare the nation and its leaders. 
Now, so far in our study of John, we've seen in the text that what some of the Jews are saying is filled with irony. But this part was so filled with irony and deeper meaning that John didn't have his readers experience it on their own, but rather it's so obvious that he makes his own comments of what's going on. And basically what he is saying, look, look at verse 51 again. Here's his first commentary on, on Caiaphas. He says this in verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that here, he prophesied. In other words, what he is saying is Caiaphas did not come up with this on his own. Now, what that does not mean is that God used Caiaphas in a way as a puppet or a mere mouthpiece. That all of a sudden Caiaphas kind of lost control of his body and his speech and all of a sudden just blurred it out as if he is possessed by a divine being. No, that's not what's happening. Rather, Caiaphas is speaking on his own callous wicked opinion in order to protect his power and authority he understands that jesus must be taken out so he's speaking from his own evil heart but here is what's happening but when caiaphas is speaking god is also speaking even though they're not saying the same things so in a sense Caiaphas was prophesying from his own callous heart. He was speaking the word of God. Now, we're going to revisit it a little bit under application, but just, just think about this. The fact that God can speak through wicked people to proclaim truth as they're speaking from their own callous heart and yet, in a sense, speaking the word of God is just mind-blowing. Oh, the sovereignty of God. And look at what Caiaphas prophesied about. He tells us, and he tells us the meaning, second part of verse 51, that Jesus was going to die for the nation. In other words, what's happening is both Caiaphas and John understood Jesus' death to be a substitutionary death. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. His life in exchange for their life. But while Caiaphas is thinking purely from a political perspective, John is inviting his readers to think of in terms of the Lamb of God. And how did John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even though Caiaphas is thinking, here is the Lamb of God that preserves our political power and authority, John is saying no. He is the substitute, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of this world. And then verse 52 says this, And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. Now, from a purely Jewish context, the
the scattered children of God could be understood as the diaspora Jews. In other words, the Jews that were dispersed all over the world because of the exiles. That in a sense that he will unite, gather all the Jews together to be coming back into the promised land under his kingdom. And that's what the prophets talked about. Both Jeremiah and both Ezekiel talked about that this, this shepherd is going to come back and gather all of his children and bring them back under his kingdom. Ezekiel 34 verse 12 says this, as a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flocks, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. And so what John is saying from this perspective, that the real children of God is not necessarily the Jews. But rather the real children of God are those who have received Jesus and believed in Jesus. That believed in his name. And if they are dispersed in this world, the Lord is going to gather them as his people. And this is very similar to when Jesus talked about the good shepherd. What did he say? I am the good shepherd. I have a sheep from a different flock. But what is he doing? He's going through all the sheep pens and he is calling them out of the many pens and collecting them as his own, his one flock. And this is what John is showing us. And so in verse 53, we see the advice that the, the, the priest was accepted. It says, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. The decision has been made. Now it just needs to be carried out efficiently and with political expediency. In other words, Jesus is not going to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he's already been found guilty. They've already found cause. There's a death sentence on his head. It's just a matter of, let's make this happen. And look at how Jesus responded. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. So somehow, we don't really know that this decision that the Sanhedrin made, news reached the ears of Jesus. Maybe there were people that were part of the Sanhedrin that sympathized with Jesus. And when they heard the news, they, they related that news to Jesus. We can think of one guy that's part of the Sanhedrin that might have sympathized with Jesus. Can anybody guess his name? Nicodemus, yes. And we're going to see his name pop up again. And as a result, what happened? Jesus no longer walked among the Jews publicly, but rather he removed himself to a safer place. But here's one of the things we have to understand. We must understand that no human court or authority could force Jesus to the cross. Both the fact and the timing are simultaneously God's determination and Jesus' own will to act. Jesus moved 12 miles from Jerusalem, far enough to be safe for the time being, but close enough to be able to attend the final Passover when the hour the Father has determined. And this sets the stage for the final week before the Passover. 
Verse 55 says this, and then we'll talk about application. Now the Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. So what's happening is many people are coming a week before the Passover. And the reason why they're coming a week before the Passover is so that they can purify themselves. Jesus doesn't come a week early. Why? Because he does not have to purify himself. But word is out. Report Jesus if you see him. His sentence is waiting for him. And that sets the table for our final week. So let, let, let's talk about application here. If you're taking notes, I think the very first thing we can learn from the passage is this, is that we can rest in the knowledge that God's plan cannot be frustrated. Like we can rest in the knowledge that God's plan cannot be frustrated. Now, it's easy for us to, to possibly look at this text, and in a sense, we can be tempted to look at this passage and put the sacrifice of Jesus squarely on the shoulders of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But what we have to understand is, even though Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are responsible for their own actions, God wasn't caught off guard because of Caiaphas's devious and horrific plan. God didn't scramble around because of the wickedness of people and say, oh no, what are we going to do? No. Before time even began, Calvary was the plan. And what have we seen throughout the Gospel of John? That over and over again we see the mentioning of Jesus' hour. As hard as they tried to kill him, as hard as they tried to arrest him or run him out of time, they failed. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And so the greatest schemes of man the most horrendous intentions and wicked plans of man stands no chance unless the sovereign Lord allows it to happen. And I really think that in this text, what we're seeing is we're seeing this tension of both the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God come into play. For example, what do we see Caiaphas he is speaking from the own evil wickedness of his heart. He is responsible for his actions. And what is the Lord doing? The Lord is sovereignly orchestrating, working through Caiaphas to accomplish his plan and purpose. Maybe a little bit more scripture will kind of help you comprehend it. Acts 2, verse, verse 23, when, when Peter was preaching, this is what he says. And, and just notice, like, uh, write the reference down and read the, the whole text, but just notice the beautiful balance of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And he says this in Acts 2, 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. I just love this passage. Why did Jesus die? 
because it was God's determined plan. Why did he die? Because of evil people who killed him. It's not one or the other. It's yes and yes. Both are true. Proverbs 19.21 Many plan are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. So, so, so what's, my, what's my point in all of this? What application can we draw? That the fact that we can rest in the knowledge that God's plan cannot be frustrated. In other words, even though it seems that evil is prevailing, that wicked men are scheming, it cannot happen until the Lord sovereignly allows it to come to pass. So what that means for us is as we look at our world and we see everything going on around us and we see the schemes of evil and we're wondering where is God in all of this, we can rest. Why? Because nothing happens without God allowing it to happen because he is sovereignly in charge. Even the death of his son was God's determined plan before time began. And yes, even using evil people to execute that plan that they are solely responsible for. So don't get bent out of shape when you read the news, whatever, whatever we don't now want to call it. Rest. Why? Our God is sovereign. Make your plans, but don't stress when it doesn't happen. Why? Because our God is sovereign. Trust Him. Here's the second application. Not only can we rest in the knowledge that God's plan cannot be frustrated because He is sovereign, the second application is this, if you're taking notes, that we can find comfort in knowing that Jesus came to save his own through substitution. We can find comfort in knowing that Jesus came to save his own through substitution. As we wrap up our time, I want to talk about substitution here. Caiaphas's words really gives us a stunning picture of Christianity's most fundamental doctrine, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Without substitutionary atonement, there's no salvation. And what substitutionary atonement points to is that Jesus is the Passover lamb that he would die in the place of those he came to redeem. And this sacrifice was willing, and the sacrifice was intentional. It is what's central to the gospel, is the substitutionary atonement, that he lived a life you could not live, and he died a death you are supposed to die. Without the substitutionary atonement, there is no gospel. But like, think about this. Like, you stood in front of a holy God, justly condemned because you were guilty because of all of your sin and your rebellion. And there's no way out. Who is going to pay for your sins? 
what happened was Jesus walked into that room and substituted himself. He said, you don't have to die for it. I will die for it. In exchange, your wickedness will become mine, and my righteousness will become yours. Kids, if you're paying attention to the substitution atonement, it's like your mom tells you, don't play with a ball in the house. And what do you do? You play with a ball in your house, and you throw it too hard, and it breaks this precious crystal heirloom that has been passed on from generations after generations. And you know you're in trouble. Why? Because they told you not to do it, and you did it anyway. And as much as you want to blame your brother or your sister for it, the truth comes out that you are guilty. And what happens to you? You get sent up to your room. Punishment is coming. And the anticipation of waiting is killing you. Because we know that's the secret and discipline. is the long anticipation. And you're sweating. And if you were like me, like a kid, you put on extra underwear. <laughs> but it doesn't always work. A friend told me, put on Vaseline. Doesn't work either. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're waiting. And your parent, mom or dad, comes in and is ready to execute your punishment that you rightfully deserve. And Jesus burst onto the scene and say, I'll take that spanking. My perfection will become yours, and your disobedience will become mine. That is the substitutionary atonement. And how would you respond to that precious gift? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took that spanking in my place, that you died in my place, that you took the punishment that I rightfully deserve in my place. I didn't even ask for it. You just stepped in and said, I will take it. And here's what we have to understand. This was not Jesus' plan. It was the triune God's plan from the very beginning. It's not that Jesus loved you and the Father tolerated you and the Spirit was like, I don't know what you're doing with these people, but rather it was in love that the Father initiated this plan of salvation because sin had to be punished. It was the Son who in love graciously secured that salvation by dying in your place, substituting himself for you. And it is in love that the Holy Spirit applies those truths and the reality of it to your life when you respond, when you accept it. It is the work of the triune God from the very beginning to the end. And this is the essence of the gospel, substitutionary atonement. And here's one of the doctrines that are under attack. Substitutionary atonement. Oh, Jesus forgives you. Well, why does he forgive you? Oh, because he loves you. Oh, so he just forgives me? No, he forgives you. Why? 
because he died in your place. He substituted himself for you. And think about what, what's on this table here. On this table is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Not physical, but rather the representation. And what does it remind us of? His substitution. His body given to us. His blood shed for us. And so when we eat it and when we're drinking it, we are reminded it's not something that I have done. Rather, it's something that he has done on my behalf. And this is why we can find comfort. The way we can find comfort, I did a funeral on Tuesday, and one of the questions I asked is, how do you know God is going to accept you when you stand before him after you die? You think God's going to accept you because of your strong faith? You think God's going to accept you because you were such a good person? That means you're depending on yourself. No. God is going to accept you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. It is His righteousness exchanged for your unrighteousness. And so for the non-believer... If you don't trust Christ as your Savior, you can't save yourself. Because if you had to face the penalty for your disobedience, it means that you have to die. Your only hope is to believe that Christ died on your behalf. As you trust Him, as you look to Him, Put all of your confidence in him. And for the believer, at times when we struggle with sin, and times when we think that God is disappointed in us, and times when we feel like we don't measure up, we're not good enough, we are reminded Christ substituted himself. My unrighteousness for his righteousness. God looks at me and he loves me and he sees me as perfect because of Christ's righteousness that has been imputed upon me. And this is where my comfort lies. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like meditate on how Jesus substituted himself for you. The punishment that you rightfully deserved, he took it on. But then What's even better is not that he take your punishment, but he also exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness, his perfection for your imperfection. And if you're not a believer, um, just simply pass these elements, but then use this maybe as an opportunity to, to, to repent of your sins, to recognize that you stand guilty before the Lord. Punishment, judgment is waiting for you. You're going to face it. There's no escaping of it. It's either you facing it or Christ facing it on your behalf. And so rather than taking these elements, repent of your sins, turn to Christ and believe that what he has done for you is true and sufficient, that it is enough. So that when he died, he covered all of your sins. And thank him for that. Praise him for that. And then come and talk to us after the service. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements and let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, help us 
as we get to look at these elements, as we get to hear the gospel, may we now see it, may we experience it, may we taste it, and may that stir in us a greater affection and love for you. May we be in awe of you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. What a wonderful reminder and a wonderful grace and mercy that's been lavished on us that when we stood in front of a holy God standing condemned waiting for judgment Jesus came and substituted himself in our place. And when we hold up these elements, he doesn't die for us over again. No, he has died once and for all. But these elements remind us of that substitution, the wonderful grace that we've experienced. And the goal of it is to fix our eyes on Christ, to no longer look to self, but to look to him to rest in him, to put our hope in him. For it was his body that was given to us. Eat it and taste it and be remembered by it. It was his blood that was shed for us. The new covenant that we have in him. Drink it, taste it, remember it. And as you've eaten and as you've drank, can you just thank the Lord right now for the salvation he has accomplished for you on the cross? Thank him for his body and blood that was given and shed for you. Ask the Lord to to help you to constantly look to him, to rest in him, to trust in him, to put your hope and confidence in him and in him alone. And if there's any sin that you're struggling with, ask the Lord that you would trust him with it, that you would cling and believe that he has defeated it and he has set you free from it, that you can overcome it because you are united in Christ. As he's died for you, you have died with him. As he's been raised from the dead, you yourself have been raised with him, and now you are alive in Christ. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths. May you stir our hearts and our affections for you. In the areas that we do not trust you in, help us to trust you. In the areas that we're distracted and we want to look to self, help us to fix our eyes on you so that we may run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.